been here the last few classes, you know that uh, this book, uh, based on my First John chapter five, repeat. Is that what you want? Okay, First John chapter five. We do that for the recording. Uh, this book is written by my understanding of the information in it, as well as the external evidence. I think it was written about AD 92. So it's sometime, some uh, 22 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So persecution from Judaism has ceased uh, because Judaism has ceased for all intents and purposes. Uh, and what has happened at the end of the first century is the, the persecution of Rome has escalated. Now, we know that it started... Uh, you know, after the fire in AD 64 in Rome, when Nero was the emperor and he blamed that on Christians, we know that it became illegal to be a Christian, so persecution started there. But it really was focused around the city of Rome. It didn't spread from there until later on in the first century. And so the Christians that John would be writing to in Asia Minor are dealing with a significant uh, pressure from those who are around them. And as a consequence of that, they are struggling to live the life that... Uh, that God calls them to live. On top of that, by this point in time, there have been some errors that have entered in, uh, some teaching, especially about Jesus, that uh, that was causing people to fail to to live up to this commitment to Christianity. In fact, a couple of the things that were taught was that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah, which people still teach that today. That's still taught today. You may or may not be aware of that. There are still people today who are waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. Uh, because they don't believe that it was Jesus. But there are others that were at that time that were teaching uh, that Jesus was a man uh, from his birth until his baptism. And at his baptism, then deity came upon him. And then before his death, since deity can't die, before his death, uh, deity left him. And then the man, Jesus, died. And so again, there was a lot of things taught about Jesus that were not true. And so John is kind of counteracting some of these issues and errors to try to encourage them to be strong in the face of their opposition, not only among those who are teaching the error, but certainly among the pressures that were happening from Rome. So as we've gone through this book, the, the, the main passage for the book, I guess, that kind of sets the stage for everything that he's going to say is found in chapter 1 when he talks about if we walk in the light as he is in the light. That was a good connection to Patrick's lesson tonight. He is faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses. So if we continue to walk with him, what happens is the blood of Jesus continues to wash away our sins. And so John goes about throughout this book talking about what that means and what it looks like. And he specifically has emphasized this responsibility to love God, which wasn't a, an emotion. You remember we talked about that? It was a commitment to do what he asked us to do. But that's not only vertical, it also has a, a horizontal element to it in the sense of if you love the father, then you have to also love his children, right? And so that connects to your brethren as well and the way you react to them and act to them. And, it, and it's not just that you're supposed to be nice to them. You know, it's not just avoiding being evil to the people around you, but you have responsibilities to them. And so especially as they were facing some of these persecutions at the end of the first century, it became very easy to, to, to kind of hide, to back up, and, and not gather even together with your brethren. And, and when you do that, what happens is you're not fulfilling your responsibility to help strengthen and encourage and teach them as they do the same for you. So not getting together as a family was very detrimental to, to all of their uh, you know, existence as Christians. So he's continued to talk about that and what it looks like as we've gone through this book. 
And he's talked about the, the Antichrist, which I've told you as we've gone through it, people read that, even in the religious world today, lots of teachers, in fact, read that and they start looking for some great world power that's going to come into existence at some point and that man's going to overthrow and take power over the whole world. And it's just a big erroneous message because John's really very simple. And John's the only one, by the way, that writes about Antichrist. He's the only one. It doesn't happen when he writes in the book of Revelation. It, it happens here. And what he said was, Antichrist is somebody who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Denies that Jesus is the Christ and that he came in the flesh. And so he goes to instruct them as to who Jesus is and what that means and, and how they're to follow him. So tonight as we finish up First John in chapter 5, what we're going to see is, and I actually want to start at the end of chapter 4 and carry it through a little bit. What we're going to see is kind of the practical uh, practical approach to closing this off, I guess I should say. They're going to see how they, how they can have confidence, and they're going to see how they can turn things over to God, and they're going to see how to depend upon each other and upon Him. So let's start in verse 20 of chapter 4 of 1 John, and we'll continue on. We read this on Sunday, but I want to bring it up again. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So that's what I've already brought up about this relationship not just being vertical, but also being horizontal. Uh, how is it that, and, and, and he's talked about this earlier, how is it that the world, not having seen God, can see God? I mean, I know there's a general sense in which, and again, Patrick talked about this as well, there's a general sense, the psalmist tells us, that in which the, the creation... The, the, the sky and the space and the earth tells us that there is the existence of a creator, right? I mean, that's what the evidence tells us, but that doesn't tell us who, right? The, the creation doesn't tell us who that God is, and that's why over time all of these civilizations have always worshipped something, but they worship what they could see, like a volcano or the sea or the sun or something like that. Whereas, on the other hand, the God that's actually the creator that's revealed to us in the Bible is the God of heaven, right? And so what John is telling us as we finish out this chapter is, though we don't see him, we can see him. Only he's not talking about in creation. What he's talking about is in each other. You know, what is it that has the power to take, and I've highlighted this many times, to take people from so many different backgrounds, uh, so many different socioeconomic positions in life, education levels, it's just nationalities, races. There's so many different backgrounds that we can have, even in the, the way that we've been raised. What is it that can take so many people from so many different uh, historical places and put them in one place and make them the same? There's nothing in the world that can do that other than God. And so the church that is the body of Christ is that place. And so as he talks about it here, that's the way we see him. Now, if we see our brethren... And they're changing because of the power of God. Do we not see God? So how is it then that we can love this one that we don't literally see and then hate the people that we see God in around us? Now, does that mean that we're somehow perfect? No, it doesn't mean that. We'll see him talk more about that. And he already has several times, but we'll see him talk more in a few minutes. But let's keep going. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And that, that idea that I said about how can you love the Father and not love 
his descendants, his children. And so, see, I, I wanted to read those last two verses of chapter 4 because we're continuing on the same thought. He just said, how can you love the one you haven't seen and not love the people that you do see? And then he connects all that together and says the people that you do see are from the one that you don't see. So if you understand who God is and you believe what he says and you believe what he does, then you also believe it more from just your life, right? It's more than just your life that changes because of the power of God, isn't it? You're not the only one, right? And so since you recognize how he changes in your life, can you not also recognize how that affects other people as well? And that makes them your family. Keep going, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now that's interesting because uh, we've heard that before about if you love God, you keep his commandments, right? Uh, Jesus has said that on more than one occasion, but it's different here. It's different. What did he say there in verse 2? We know that we love the children when, when we keep God's commandments. We know we love God because we keep his commandments. How do you know you love the children of God? Because you keep his commandments. Now, again, this is a challenging thing to present because we hear the word love and we don't, we don't consider it the way that it's used so frequently in the Bible. It's not an emotion. It's not a, you know, I'm going to be, you know, the people that I am friends with, I'm friends with them because our relationship is beneficial to both of us, right? That's the people you're friends with. People that you relate to or that you associate with are people that have a positive impact with you and you with them. Okay, that's not love. That's friendship. That's a word phileo that's actually in the New Testament. But love, the way that it's defined in the in the scriptures, is a commitment. You love God and you show that love by doing what he instructs us to do. And the reason that is a commitment is because I don't always get it. You know, when he says this is the better life, well, it doesn't always look like that to me. You know, when I look around here in this world and see everything that the devil's saying, well, that sometimes looks like the better life, doesn't it? That's why it's tempting. So I have to love God enough to trust that he knows what's better for me and he loves me. But that also gets into how I interact with other people. See, because it's really easy for me to talk about loving God, but it's not so easy to talk about loving everybody else. And here's why. Well, what's God ever done bad to me? Nothing. Hasn't everything that God's done for me and to me been an act of his grace and mercy? Because we didn't deserve anything, right? But what about the rest of us? We haven't always done good for everybody, have we? There's been people that we've not done what we should have done to maybe in your life. You look back over your life and there are people that you probably regret the way you acted around them or something. Okay, well, what about the people that you're not so close with? How do you love them? The enemies. Do you know you can have enemies in the body of Christ? And what I mean by that is the world's definition. People that you don't trust, people you don't get along with. How do you treat them? That's harder, isn't it? That's harder. How do you treat it? You treat them by obeying the commands of God, which says that you love them too. You want what's best for them too. Is there anybody that you could think of, and don't certain? Please don't give me a name. Uh, anybody that you could think of in your mind, even in this congregation, 
that if they just decided to turn away from God and walk away from him, you'd be okay with it because you're just not that close to them anyway and you don't think they're really committed anyway. Or is every part of your family important because of your relationship with the Father? See what he's talking about here? He's talking about a commitment to each other based on the fact that we're going to do what God wants us to do. Now, I want that last statement in verse 3. I want to read verse 3 again, and I want to keep going because verse 4 answers the last statement. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And we're going to stop there. I, I, I don't like that verse break there because I think that last sentence of verse 3 and the first sentence of verse 4 are the same thought. Uh, he says here, we love God so we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome and the reason they're not burdensome was what? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is an interesting way he phrases this because, you know, when you look at the old covenant that they lived under, it was burdensome. You know, all the sacrifices that they had to be involved with daily, yearly, monthly, the beginning of harvest. I mean, so many things that they had to be involved with. Traveling, I mean, you think about the trips that they made to Jerusalem three times a year. All the males had to be there, and you think that's not that big a deal. But it's not like getting in your car here and driving to wherever in the United States for some kind of conference, right? It was actually a commitment to make a journey at that point, especially to Jerusalem because you're climbing mountains, right? That was the highest point in the area. So... The old covenant was burdensome in the sense of there were a lot of things that were a heavy burden to carry. So when he talks now about our lives in this new covenant and he says that it is not burdensome, does that mean the same thing? Does that mean that as the old covenant was difficult, then the new covenant is easy? I guess the question I'm asking is, is he saying that Christianity is easy? Is that what it means to say his commands are not burdensome? No. No, that's not what it means. Uh, it, it gets back to this same thought that we've said so many times, and John has, has hit on it so many times. And that is the sense of our God, who is the from, the from the beginning of this book, he says he's been from the beginning, just like he started in the book of John. He's always been God. He has always been here for us. He has always wanted what's best for us. He understands what's out here, and he knows how to make us successful in living a good life. He knows that. So when he says this is the way to live, he doesn't say it because it's difficult. He doesn't say it to make life more challenging. He says it to make it life that is overcoming this world. That's what that verse 4 said. For the one who follows God overcomes the world. That's the not burdensome part. Not burdensome means you're not tied here. Uh, it means you're not oppressed here. Listen, I've got a pretty good life. I think most of you do as well, if not all of you. But if this is all there is, that's not great, is it? If this is all there is with the limitations, wasn't it an apostle who said, if, we, if, if God is not resurrected from the dead, wasn't it Paul who said, if God is not resurrected from the dead, we are, are of all people most miserable? If he hasn't resurrected from the dead, what's the point in any of this? That's burdensome. But knowing who he is and knowing what he has done for us, knowing what he has told us and accepting that means that I can, I can defeat all of this. I don't have to be bound by this world. There's something better. 
And as a consequence of that, that makes his laws for me something that builds me up rather than binds me down. All right, keep going, the rest of the verse. And this is the victory that overcame the world, that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, two words there that I've talked about, and I didn't look up in the, new, in the Old King James to see how they're worded here, but the word, uh, he who overcomes the world, overcomes, and, he, and the word believes. Those are both in that present active tense in the sense of, meaning it's something that happens and keeps happening. So this overcoming of the world is not something that, hey, look, I believe that God exists, and so I obeyed the gospel, I'm victorious over the world, and so it's all done now. Everything's great, and I'm never going to have another struggle. No, he's saying as long as I continue to uh, walk with, same thing he said in chapter 1 about walking in the light. I continue to believe what he says, I continue to hang on in it, I continue to walk with him, then what happens is I continue to overcome the world. Remember when you were a kid and you thought life was tough? But it was a lot simpler than it is now. And if you could look back, we were talking about this a while ago. Uh, if you could go backwards, say, 20 years, 30 years. And I'm not talking about, you know, I, I, there are people that I've lost in my life that I like to go back to them sometimes. But, uh, no, I'm talking about, you know, if you're, I'm, I'm 51. If I could go back to 20 years old, you think I'd do it? Okay, I'd like the energy that I had when I was 20, but I don't want to do all that again. I've learned a couple things since then. Some things are a little bit easier now than they were then, but there are some things that are harder too, right? So it's a process of life. And it's not that I, one day I just woke up and said, okay, here's who I'm going to be, and I just was that. There has to have been a continuous direction, right? A continuous walk. And that's this idea of overcoming the world. Our faith, we sing the song, faith is the victory. I don't like this song so much, not because of the message. I don't like it because we sing it like it's a death march. We sing faith is the victory like we're walking to a funeral. Uh, when in fact what John is saying is faith is our faith. Continually walking with him continually assures that this world's not it for me. In fact, this is not even the better part. Now if you're lost, this is the better part. You better get all you can get now. But if you have faith in him, if you're walking with him, this is nothing. So we continue, and he continues to overcome this world. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So here's how I can know that what God says to me and what Jesus has done for me helps me overcome the world. Three witnesses. And those three witnesses are... And by the way, I don't, I'll come back to that. He says here that we know Jesus because of the Spirit and the water and the blood, right? Interesting to me, very interesting to me. I, I looked up some of the writings and some of the commentaries, denominational commentaries. It's very similar to what John wrote in John chapter 3 when he was talking about Nicodemus and Jesus. And they had that discussion and Jesus said to him, you know, uh, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus said, how in the world can I be born again? You can't go back in your mother's womb. He said, no, you got to be born, born of the water and the spirit or the blood. And people argue with that and they say, 
That doesn't mean you have to be baptized. That means you have to be born. The water is amniotic fluid. So you have to be born physically and then you have to be born spiritually by the blood. And that doesn't have anything to do with bad baptism. Yet all the ones that I read agree on this verse that water is baptismal. Interesting to me. Just extra credit. But anyway, three. Three are witnessing here. One is the spirit. One is the water. And one is the blood. And what they're witnessing to is that Jesus is the Christ. And by that, his power helps us to overcome the world. Well, how are those three things witnesses? Well, think about it. First of all, all of those prophets, all those prophets under the Old Testament that came to Israel or came to Judah or came to Abraham or others and talked to them about, to Moses and to Israel and talked to them about what was coming. What were they talking about? Were they talking about a nation owning land? Were they talking about... A whole lot of descendants. What was the point of all those prophecies? A Messiah. All those prophecies were evidence that when this Messiah shows up, of who he would be. Now, how did those prophets get those messages? The Spirit. So the Spirit delivered messages to them, and they recorded them, and they spoke them, and those messages people were supposed to learn. So when the Messiah shows up, some 300 or so prophecies would prove who he is, right? So the Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. On top of that, when his ministry began, John, again, Patrick brought this up. That was a perfect lesson for our class tonight. Uh, uh, When John's ministry is going on and he's out in the wilderness teaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's baptizing people, looking forward to this this one who is the Messiah, all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he, he seeks for John to baptize him. And John says, I need you to baptize me. And yet Jesus said, suffer to be so for now. And so John buries him in the water and brings him up. And what happens? A voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So the spirit testified through the prophets of who the Messiah would be. And God said at his baptism that he was his son. He's not just a man, right? He was his son, which, by the way, defeats the idea that the Spirit came on him, deity came on him after his baptism. was at, he was already his son. And then his death, and you look at his death, that's the third witness. You look at his death and say, well, wait, that doesn't mean a whole lot because, well, the truth of the matter is, I mean, details are obviously different, but well, lots of people die, don't they? In fact, everybody dies. We've got a couple of accounts that we could name where they didn't, but everybody else has died, right? Even those people like Lazarus who died and was resurrected, he had to die again, didn't he? And the one who touched Elisha's bones who resurrected, he had to die again, right? And the widow's son who was raised in her funeral, he had to die again. So how is the death of Jesus different in that it is a witness? Because it was resur- he was resurrected never to die again. So you have three witnesses, and they're all, I mean, it's the same. Three witnesses from heaven, three witnesses from earth, it all comes the same. In that the Spirit is testifying on earth. Jesus the Christ is living it. God is speaking it. And he is victorious over death. And so all of this is true. All this means is this. I truly can believe that this life overcomes the world. Now it doesn't always feel like that, does it? You think about being a Jew in say AD 92. And you're living in Asia Minor. And Rome's uh, persecution is intensifying. Very shortly. In fact, it may have already happened to some. We read about some in the book of Revelation that already have died. Uh, But if it hasn't happened already, it's very quickly going to happen. People are going to 
people are going to die for their faith. People are going to be thrown to the lions or they're going to be burned at the stake. And that doesn't look like victory over the world, does it? You're watching your family member as they're being burned at the stake because they wouldn't recant their Christianity. Or worse yet, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't recant it. And so they're dying at the stake. That doesn't feel victorious over the world, does it? So contrary to what it feels like, how can I know what it is? Because God has confirmed it with three witnesses, both in heaven and on earth. Jesus is victorious over death. He is the Messiah on the earth. He gives us victory over, if, if death, if he has victory over our death, well, he has victory over our life too, doesn't he? All right, keep going. Uh, verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So let's start with the last of it. God has provided eternal life for who? For everybody? For all who are in his son. There are so many passages in the scripture that talk about being in Christ. That's his son, isn't it? Passages like Galatians 3, 26 and 27 that talks about we are baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6 that talks about we are buried with him in baptism, placed in him. Ephesians chapter 1 that tells us in verse 3 that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And he continues on. Paul continues on in chapter 1 of Ephesians talking about Redemption is in him. Forgiveness of sins is in him. Inheritance is in him. Promises, all the promises of God are in him. So you have all of these things that are in him. So now he says, look, what God says is those people who have eternal life are the people who are in his son. If you deny that, you, you accuse God of lying. That's not popular. You know, to say that you have to be in the body of Christ, which another way of saying that is that you have to be in the church of Christ to be saved, that's not popular, is it? That's not popular at all. To say that you don't have to be is popular, but it calls God a liar. Because what God said is eternal life is only found in His Son, which is in His body, right? Okay, so the promise He's saying here is, Look, we've already been told God can't lie, right? It's impossible for God to lie. There are very few things that God cannot do. One of them is he can't lie. It's against his very nature to lie. And so if you then deny what he says and live your life contrary to what he, what he tells us, then you don't love him and you accuse him of lying. So you have to be in the body of his son to have this eternal life, which then allows you to overcome the world. Keep going. Uh, verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Wait a second. Everybody here is alive, right? I, I haven't put anybody into a coma yet, right? We're all alive. Uh, so how could he possibly say here, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I mean, is it not obvious? He's not talking about physical life, is he? 
He's talking about that eternal life that we have in him. So if we have him in our lives, then we have the life that he promises. Keep reading. And that's how he over, overcometh the world. Yeah. Uh, verse 13. These things I have written to you. Listen to this. This is a very important, powerful verse in this book. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You can know. I don't know how to emphasize this enough. And I'm not trying to tell you that I don't struggle with this the same way that you do too. But we, are, we have been so conditioned by our world to not be, uh, to believe that we can earn anything, which we can't. To not believe that we're, you know, better than everybody else, which we're not. But we've been so conditioned to hold to the world's view of this that we can't even have confidence in salvation. You know, we've got a hope. And we don't use that word like the Bible uses it. We use it like when you put together your Christmas list for Santa Claus. You know, there's no evidence for what we want, but this is what we want, so we hope we get it. No, that's not the way the Bible's using it. What he's saying here is you can know where you stand with God. Because of your goodness, because of his blood, right? You know where the blood is, you know how to access it, you know how to walk in it. Since you know that, you can know whether you're right with him or not. Not by your perfection, by his forgiveness. And so now he connects it, I can know. Even though all the signs out here make it look like the devil's winning, right? Every sign out here makes it look like the devil's winning because I don't know about you, but I don't think things are getting better. I think they're getting worse. Right? And I'm an optimist. So uh, I think these are getting worse. So when it looks around out here like the devil's going to win it all, I know that that's not true. And the reason I know it's not true is because God can't lie and because he's delivered the truth to us. And so I can know how to walk with him. That's a lot, isn't it? Oh, and by the way, that's what I need to keep going. You know, when you wake up and it looks bad and it... Imagine Job, everything he went through, and he wakes up and he says, I don't understand this. Uh, I don't, I don't, in fact, the whole book, he's arguing back and forth. I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. It's not because I've sinned or whatever. But it began from a foundation of him saying, God giveth and God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't understand it, but he knew what God's promises were, right? Okay, keep going. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother... Now, before I read this further, if we stopped on those two verses, what we would say is... We would, we would qualify this by saying, look, what he's saying is God answers your prayers, but you've got to pray according to his will. And that's true, isn't it? But that's not what he's saying in this passage, so I'm going to keep reading. We know that he hears us, whatever we ask. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. And boy, we get in these huge debates on these few verses here. And that's why I wanted to read all of it to connect it together. In fact, we even have a belief system in our world today that if you have a connection with the right people, whether they're alive or dead, you can pray for people who have died in sin and, and pay money. You always have to pay money. And they'll get those people out of that sin that's already been dead, and this is where it comes from. And that's not what he said. Let me put this in simple P 
picture for you. There's a reason that we have the invitation at the end of every uh, devotional or sermon or whatever. There's a reason. And it's not because the Bible tells us that in order for worship to be decent and in order that you have to have, you know, two songs and a prayer and a song and the Lord's Supper and a song and a sermon and an invitation and then announcements. It's not because of that, because that's not in there, is it? Here's why. Two reasons. One is because if you're talking about God and his word and his son and somebody decides they want to be made right with him, they need the opportunity to do that, don't they? So we offer that. But here's the second reason. If you've walked away from him, you might be motivated to come back home, right? And if you come back home, the the prodigal son, look at the life that he lived. Walked away from home, wasted all that money in sin, wasted his life in sin, finds himself in the the trash pit where the pigs are eating. When he comes home, is he a second-class citizen? Is he... uh, Is he dragging his sins with him to the father? Or does the father forgive him and make him a son? There is a sin that you can commit, not a sin. There is sin that you can commit that God won't forgive you for. But that sin is a sin that you won't repent of. A sin that you continue in to death, God won't forgive you for. But here's what he just said. When your brother, you see your brother in sin, and it's not something they're going to stay in, but it's something that they're going to come back from, you pray to God, and here's what you can know. What you can know is they're forgiven. That's the invitation. It's about people obeying the gospel, but if it's about a brother or sister who comes back and says, look, I've been in sin, and you don't say, well, I told you so. I knew you never, never were living the way you ought to be living. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's not what you say. What you say is, I'm going to go to God for you. And you know what you know? When you go to God for him, he hears you, doesn't he? He hears you and he forgives you. So he says, don't go. This is hard. This is hard. You'd like to be able to pray for those family members or loved ones or others who have died in sin. You'd like to be a pray for those people who are outside of Christ. That's not what he says to do, is it? He says, pray for your brother who comes home. Pray for those people who don't remain in their sins. But... Notice what he said there. All unrighteousness is sin, but not a sin leading to death. So don't get the idea that you and I are perfect somehow. No, the idea is that when we fail, we don't continue in it to death. We don't continue in it. We go back to chapter 1, walk in the light as he is in the light. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? So it doesn't mean that we're perfect. What it means is God forgives the sins of those who continue to walk in the light of his son. Okay, wow, I'm almost out of time. 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And we've, we've heard John talk about this before, but he closes with it again. Whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Is he saying if you sinned, that meant you weren't, you weren't faithful, you weren't a Christian? People believe that. Uh, I have family members that said, I have a loved one that's turned to sin, but I know they're not lost yet because I know that since they're a Christian that God's going to take them before they get so lost that they'd be lost. So they can live in a little bit of sin and still be okay. Yeah, that's not what this passage is saying. No, what this passage is saying is we know, we know that if you're a Christian, you're not going to walk according to the ways of the sin, sinful world. You're not going to, live, you're not going to continue in a life that leads you down a path to be lost. You're going to walk in the light. You're going to fail, but you're going to walk in the light. You're going to keep walking. And we know that God will continue to forgive you. We know 
that if you're born of God, you keep walking with Him and listen to it. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. It's discipline. Remember Paul saying, I buffet my body daily? You, it's, it's not an accident. If you're a Christian, it's not an accident. It's a, it's a conscientious choice. Actually, the way that Paul would say is it, it is grace through... Nobody knows the next word. Faith. That's a conscientious choice, right? You have to believe something. You have to choose to walk in it. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So we know where we are. We know how to walk with him. And the reason we know is because God delivered a message. And John's one of the ones who recorded it, right? But that last statement is interesting to me because it doesn't seem to connect to anything. Uh, little children, keep yourself from idols. Okay? And the reason that doesn't seem to connect is because when I think of idols, I think of, you know, a golden calf or... Uh, I don't know, something in Egypt or, you know, different things like that. That's what I think of a Baal, right, that they had bowed down before. But that's not what he's connecting it to. He's connecting it to life. Life can be an idol, can't it? Temptation can be an idol. That sin that you won't give up, the reason you won't give it up is because it's your God. You know, it's what you want to fulfill you. And so you, you set God aside to hang on to this new God that you have. And so his concluding statement is simply recognize what it really is. If you know that this thing that you're hanging on to so much is your idol that's leading you to death, it's a little easier to let go of it, isn't it? Okay, we've run out of time. Uh, Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word, and we're so thankful for this message that we can know uh, where we stand with you simply because of the blood of your Son. Help us, Father, to trust you, to trust that this life is the life that overcomes the world, to depend upon you and not ourselves, and forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.